Welcome to the Intelligence Square podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're bringing you part one of our live event with James Comey, former director of the FBI, and screenwriter and satirist Armando Iannucci on crime, punishment, and Donald Trump. Part two and three of this event are available ad-free for subscribers now. And for our listeners who don't subscribe, part two will be available in our next episode. This event took place in June 2023 in Union Chapel, London. Are there any fans of political corruption in tonight? Because what a week it's been. Um, I don't know, James, if you know about uh, Boris Johnson and the kangaroo court that saw him being expelled against his wishes from Parliament. Oh, no, he resigned of his own accord. Um, there's shenanigans going on in Scotland. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, uh, Berlusconi died. And, but it all... It all... It all goes back, I think, to uh, one Donald Trump who this week has been facing more federal indictments. And I thought, if only we could speak to someone who had a a working knowledge of how federal law enforcement worked in America, and in particular, with regard to the office of the President of the United States. So please welcome James Comey. Um, James has just written a a, a fantastic thriller, actually, a real page-turner, called uh, Central Park West, which, as you'd expect, the details of how the FBI and the law authorities operate, it feels very authentic and rich and detailed. But you will probably know him as the face of the inquiry into Hillary Clinton's emails, which seemed so extraordinarily important at the time, uh, but now isn't. And then the person... (laughs) The person who uh, Donald Trump asked to go easy on, was it Michael Flynn, his national security advisor, when you were looking in, when the FBI was investigating potential links between the uh, Trump campaign and Russia. So, first of all, what's your reaction to where we are now with Donald Trump? Is this, is this bad for him? I think it's bad for him legally. I don't know that it's bad for him politically in seeking the Republican nomination. But if you read that indictment, it's what we call a speaking indictment. So you now know the evidence that the prosecutors are going to put into evidence against him. The pictures are there. The tapes are there. And it strikes me as a very, very strong case. He's in big trouble legally. Legally, because one of his attorney generals, Barr, said that he's toast as far as these uh, indictments are. Yeah, I hate to agree with Bill Barr, but I, on, this, <laughs> on this I will, that I think anybody who cares to understand it, after reading it, will understand he's in big trouble. And because, though, you said, you, you mentioned the difference between legal trouble and political trouble, because he's saying that even if indicted, even if charged, even if convicted, he's still going to run as president. Is that, is that possible under the American Constitution? It is. Being convicted of a felony might actually prevent him from voting for himself, but it doesn't, <laughs> it does not prevent it. It does not prevent him from being a candidate for office. One less thing for him to think about, isn't it? Right. <laughs> a lot on his plate. Yes. Yeah. If you wrote this in a screenplay, it would get rejected that, that the Republican Party might nominate such a person, but I think they might. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not writing Veep at the moment because yeah. 
so much of what's happening now. Is, but th there he is, gaining momentum and traction and you know, turning it into the Donald Trump show by saying, there's no evidence, they've got nothing on me, while pictures of classified documents in boxes in his bathroom have been released. And we're at that stage, because I mentioned the Hillary Clinton email thing, we'll get onto that. That seemed so important and, and you know, people were getting very, very worked up about it at the time, that she might have used emails or sent emails on a personal server rather than, this is the nuclear codes sitting in his shower. <laughs> and yet, why hasn't the world caved in? What's, what's happened in those four or five years to, to, to turn that climate into one where the reality is not something that people take seriously? As to his supporters, yes. which are a distinct minority of Americans, it's not about facts. They've been drawn into a cult, really. And and so there's no way out for them. And every bad fact is painful for them if they stare at it, and so they turn away. January 6th, the TV whispers to them, you fool, look what you did, you fool. Very few people can stare at that, most turn away. I've had cases where fraud victims showed up to support the fraudster at sentencing because it's so hard to admit about yourself that I was a fool. And so there are millions of Americans for whom it doesn't matter. What you just said is absolutely true about the difference between this and the Clinton case. It doesn't matter because it's not about the facts for those mm -hmm. folks. And so there's nothing really to be done about that slice of his followers. They'll drift away eventually, write another story, just as Nixon, when Nixon resigned, 30-some percent mm -hmm. supported him. But they found a way to drift away from him, and that, that's what it'll take with that hardcore group. But will he drift away in time for the next election, or is there still uh, a real danger? That I think it's a real, a real prospect that he will be the Republican nominee for president. I think it is very unlikely that the American people, in, even in our slightly odd electoral mm -hmm. vote system, would elect Donald Trump, but it's a non-zero chance, which is why it's so important the American people focus on what's going to be on the ballot next year, and in a way they're not going to be able to avoid focusing because he'll be front and center in our lives again. Mm -hmm. Talking about front and center, I mean, you've met the guy up close, most notoriously at a, was a dinner or a lunch yeah. where he sat you down and asked you as head of the FBI to go easy, to lay off. You mentioned it's, it's like the language of a mobster, really, that, that sense of go easy on my guys, you know, keep them, you know. That's bad, bad stereotype Italian mafia New York. <laughs> just, just I, I actually, I'm going to make a complaint against myself for that, sorry. But, <laughs> Talk us through that moment then, you know, when you're up close with, with someone. Like well, that was actually the, the so-called loyalty dinner. We were sitting yes. as close as you and I are alone. They had pushed all the furniture off to the side of this cavernous green room on the, the first floor of the residence at the White House. Why? I don't know why. <laughs> it's but ominous. just a gigantic rug with a tiny table, and we yeah. faced each other. And he <laughs> asked for directly asked me to promise loyalty to him. And I was so surprised by it, all I could think to do was stare at the man. And so one beat, two beats, three beats of silence. And then he looked down and started eating again and came back to it. But the purpose of that dinner was for me to promise him that I was his FBI director. And so I didn't focus much on the food because the rest of the time I was trying to make sure that he didn't say anything that would reinforce that idea. Would there be notes taken at that lunch or would you take notes afterwards? The moment I got that? in my armored yeah. car, I started writing down everything that had been said okay. because I knew how significant that was. And 
I knew that it was the, really the end between the two of us because I wouldn't give him what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just the stare, but I, to, to tell Donald Trump anything, you almost always have to interrupt him. And so <laughs> I interrupted him to tell him, here's how it has to work, why it's so important to have the Department of Justice have an independent spirit from the president. The American people have wanted it for 50 years since J. Edgar Hoover. And he was focused on his ice cream or something, so it didn't get through. <laughs> what, <laughs> when you say you had to interrupt him, is, is that what he's like then? Is it just an, is it a kind of uh, long flow of any word that comes into his head? What's the... Yeah, it's a long, again, in my experience, yeah. it's a long verbal search for affirmation. So he's just constantly telling you things mm -hmm. and then saying, right, I'm right about that, I'm right about that. And probably the tensest moment that we had was he was trying to get me sitting in the Oval Office to agree that what he had said about Putin was fine when he had said, you know, America, we're killers too. And, and I wouldn't agree. And I said, Mr. President, actually, I, I think that's wrong. And that's, that's not a good description of the way we conduct ourselves. And it was almost like a shadow across the room at that moment. Oh. And so I was surprised the day I was fired. I shouldn't have been surprised to be fired. How did you get the news? I was talking to employees in the Los Angeles field office, a big audience of FBI people, and behind in this training room there were three televisions with no sound on, tuned to news channels. <laughs> and while I'm speaking, I start to notice <laughs> that and the first one that picked, it, it's, I'm a, I have to relive this right yeah. now, unfortunately. <laughs> But it We've said, got the TV monitors here. But just <laughs> it said over, on the TVs, it said, Comey resigns. Yes. And so I, I, you all don't know this, but there's a lot of very funny people in the FBI. <laughs> and so I thought it was a practical joke. Okay. And so I turned to the head of the LA office, a woman that I had promoted who I thought the world of, and I said, that took a lot of work. And then I kept talking. And then the... <laughs> because I wasn't going to let them get the better of me, so I wanted to be a good sport. But I, so I kept talking, and then I noticed it now said, Comey fired across all of them, and I thought, no, nah, they're not going to no. go there. <laughs> um, and so now all the employees are turning around looking at the screens, and I said, look, I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm going to go find out. But it doesn't change what I want to say to you, and so I said some things about the quality you, of their work, and then I walked out. <laughs> you, you, should, you could have maintained the, uh, the lie. You could have taken a cue from your own president. And just <laughs> like, that didn't happen. Yeah. It was all lies, fake news, mainstream media. Didn't happen. I'm still here. I wish you'd been there. <laughs> no, I'm not going to leave. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 
and one because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. <laughs> and did you get a, a leaving present or did you... Uh... <laughs> I did not. Uh, I, I was allowed to fly home on the FBI aircraft, uh -huh. which infuriated Trump. He called uh, my deputy, who immediately became the acting director, and said he wanted an investigation as to how I was allowed to come home on an FBI plane. And the deputy said, like, I could investigate it, but I could tell you the answer right now. I, I authorized it. <laughs> <laughs> We're responsible for his protection. We yeah. can't leave him in L.A. But Trump was furious about that. Yeah, see, that is an episode of succession, I think. I think, <laughs> I think one of the Roys takes a plane and uh, another Roy says he's not allowed to do that. But actually, the, the resign behind you, I think we did do that in the thick of it. We didn't do it in Veep, but we did do Malcolm Tucker says he's not resigning, and then, but the news comes on right behind him. Um, it's but, funny but, now. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what were, I mean, but you said, but actually when you had the lunch, you kind of thought that is it, though, didn't you? That the, the tide has turned. Yeah, when I wouldn't, I mean, the purpose of that was mm. to, to extract a promise from me that I would be no threat to him or any of his people. Mm -hmm. And then when I wouldn't agree to dump the case against Michael Flynn, that was yeah. the second stone in the load. And then the third, I think, was when I interrupted him to tell him he was wrong about Putin and America. And then the fourth was he wanted me to say publicly he wasn't under investigation and I wouldn't do it. And so, I, and here's the way I misinterpreted it. I thought he hates me, good, because that means there'll be a distance between us. He won't be inviting me over for dinner anymore. But it, it tipped over into sort of an irrational, I need to get rid of this guy. But is this something, I mean, you must have had dealings with him prior to that, obviously, whether as president or, or even in New York as a New York figure, you must have come up against him. Before. No, I no. mean, I met him before he was president, literally. Yeah. President Obama sent me, the director of the CIA and the director of the NSA up to New York to Trump Tower the first week of January, so three weeks before he took office. So this to, is during the transition. Right, to tell yeah. him what we had discovered about the Russian interference in the election. And so it wasn't a great beginning. <laughs> But yeah, I'd never met the man before. Yeah. Obviously, I knew who he was because his name was plastered all over the place. Yes. Yes, he can never forget who he is, can he, really? Is there something, never having met him, but just reading so many accounts of how he operates, and is there something sociopathic about him? I mean, you talked about that continual need for affirmation, that even though he hated you, he still wanted to get your approval in a way. I mean, we have the late, dearly departed Boris Johnson. <laughs> we, we have... He seems to have that same. He doesn't have any friends, but he wants everyone to be his friend. It's all about people reflecting their approval of him, which is fine on one-to-one -one basis, but when it's the person who runs the country, it's a much more serious... Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not in a position to diagnose him, but I, I've never met... And this sounds like I'm being facetious, but I mean this. I've never met an adult with a greater hunger for affirmation. It seemed as if everything was about 
what can fill this hole in me. So there's some gigantic hole in the middle of his identity that I don't know where that comes from. And in some ways, it's, it'd be sad if he wasn't uh, in the positions of power. He has been and wants to be again. But that's, that's what I was struck by. You're president of the United States, yet you're constantly working to get me to say something good about you. And that's been his kind of downfall in a way in that he wants everyone's approval. So he's quite happy to have journalists following him around. He's quite happy to have... I think the central piece of evidence in, in the current indictment is there's a tape recordings of him saying <laughs> the things that he is on his social media saying he didn't say. Yeah. This, this kind of not, not knowing when to shut up. He's not a very good mastermind, is he? He's, he <laughs> well, I'm not sure from moment to moment. I still think the challenge in prosecutors making cases that haven't been brought yet, the yeah. January 6th case is going to turn on how do you prove the content of his mind when even he may not know moment to moment what he means or thinks about something, which is why I long thought that this document's case was the greatest liability he faced because it's so focused. Mm -hmm. And once they have the tape, it, it's very easy for them to establish it. But the, what's unsaid in the indictment is, so what was his motive? Mm -hmm. And I think I could be convinced, I don't have any inside knowledge on this, but I could be convinced his motive was simply to be able to fill that hole, show you that I have these cool documents, even though yeah. that makes no sense. You're just a visiting journalist, but to show you that I have cool toys and so it's about me. Yeah, that's a strange thing because he, he was the president. He doesn't have to prove that he had access to the nuclear codes. We would assume that that was the case. I do remember when we were researching feet, and we were shown around the West Wing, and Obama's uh, body man, a rather large guy called Reggie Love, yeah. he was a great guy, and everyone goes around wearing their surname on their lapel, so he had Love written, uh, was showing us around the West Wing. But he would keep referencing the television program, The West Wing. So he would say, this is the Roosevelt Room, this would be where CJ and Josh would. <laughs> and I'm thinking, but hang on, you are, this is, this really is it. You, <laughs> why don't you say this is where Barack Obama would maybe have a conversation with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton? And it's like they need that sense of the outer world. They like the showbiz element of it. They, it's almost like they're not sure that whether what they do is an interesting enough job in itself, being the president and, and working in the West Wing. <laughs> that they need this kind of affirmation outside, this recognition that, it's a, that it has, there's, a, there's a charisma attached to it if, um, if Hollywood can get hold of it. And I found that kind of a fascinating slightly disconnect between you know, the power that was there and, and their attitudes towards it. Really. I'm sure you didn't see that with Barack Obama, though. Right. right. Was he, he very confident? I never, yeah. I never met him. But, yeah, uh, and I hadn't met him before yeah. he interviewed me for FBI director. Yeah. But, he is one of the most secure people I've ever dealt with. And he might say this, if he has a weakness, it's maybe overconfidence, but he's not mm. seeking affirmation. There's not a hole he's trying to fill in himself, mm. which is what made the, 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 the two of them so striking. Yes. Yeah. yes, and although it's easy to make Trump a figure of fun, it is also deathly serious, isn't it? it since you were... Uh, uh, voluntarily uh, removed from the office of uh, head of the FBI. You've really written a lot, really, about the dangers, the potential dangers and the threat to American democracy as, that have arisen as a result of what Trump has done and what his followers have done. Yeah, I thought I had to. Yeah. And I don't, I don't understand others similarly situated who decided not to speak out, mm -hmm. and I can't judge them. I just thought 
I can't look at my children or grandchildren if I don't say what I see and what, what I worry what do you about. Think has, what damage do you think has happened already? And, and, and what more could happen if there was a second term Trump? I think he has eroded a norm in America, which is that the truth is real. There is a touchstone that is the truth, and we measure our leaders by their tether to that touchstone. You know, when Barack Obama said something about health insurance that was inaccurate, he was held accountable. He had to explain. The danger I saw in Trump and still see is that the lies are so, so extensive that they could wash away the touchstone, and we would stop judging without even realizing it, but drop the norm that it matters mm -hmm. whether our leaders tell the truth or not. And so he did that by beating down the press, by constantly, constantly reinforcing the preconceptions of the members of his political cult. And it's a, it's a long walk back from a place where we've lost that at the center of American life. And on top of that, closer to my work, is he's intentionally taken a flamethrower to the Department of Justice and the FBI for reasons that I understand, if you think about his worldview, he knew if a threat was gonna to come to him, that's where it would come. And so he would prep that battlefield by burning it down long in advance. And now he's pulling on those reserves among his supporters. I told you they were corrupt, I told you they were evil. And that's a dangerous place to be because you can criticize and should criticize government institutions, but we need to see those justice institutions as separate from mm -hmm. the political. And he's made sure, I mean, even to say this, if you put this in a script to be rejected, the notion that the FBI is a bunch of leftists bent on destroying Republicans in the United States is so crazy that just to say it out loud seems silly, but there are millions of Americans who believe that because it's been repeated over and over and over again. So. Among, I, mean, I could go on with the depressing list, but that's probably enough but right what's, now. What's, what's, your, what's your biggest worry if there was a second Trump presidency? What, what more damage could he do? He, I'm loath to be too prescriptive because mm -hmm. I can see ways that he could do more damage. Also, you don't want to give him ideas, correct, I suppose. Correct. <laughs> correct. I think the danger, maybe I'll just say it in this yeah. way. I think he understands better how things work and his supporting cast would be even deeper towards mm -hmm. the bottom of the barrel than the last time. And so he would be the retribution president with a better understanding of the levers of power, surrounded by a group of people who were looking to burn it all down. And our system would survive that, but he could do things that would be much more lasting damage than he did the last time. The worrying thing that I'm reading <clears throat> is that his cam campaign team are actually much more focused and much more effective and efficient than the rather kind of ragbag team that he had in 2016, because I think they signed up thinking it would be a jolly adventure. Yeah. And we're not going to win, but it'll be a laugh. Whereas this lot now that he has, he's cleared out, either he's cleared out or his family have cleared themselves out, but there's no sign of Ivanka and Jared, yeah. and all, although it's, it's very, very hard-nosed, thorough, highly professional, campaigners, and, and that's, that's the worrying thing. You, I mean, you mentioned a cult, the Republican, and you, had, you were previously registered as, as a Republican mm -hmm. voter, you, you've been a Republican Correct. voter, yeah? Correct. So how do you feel about the Republican Party? Because, you know, they're not, they're not doing much to stop this. We've had Republicans, there was a Republican representative who talked about how FBI should be defunded and dismantled. You know, defunding the police was the 
it was a criticism, it was a mantra that the right used against the left four or five years ago as, as something that the, the extremist left were talking about. But here's a Republican yeah. talking about dismantling, defunding. Yeah, I don't the think FBI. the Republican Party exists anymore in the United States. And, and some sign of that is the last time there was a Republican presidential campaign, they didn't have a platform. Right? They don't stand for anything. That's why it wasn't being, again, trying to be wise in calling it a cult. It is a cult of personality. And it's just about hating and grievance, and it's centered on this person. And so it's hard to even recognize it. Now, there are still Republican office holders, and most of them want to keep their office enough that they will say or do anything to placate the base, because the base could deprive them of their office by voting against them in a primary election. And so there's a, there's a cynical, deeply cynical crust at the top, mm -hmm. and then a whole lot of people who've been harvested by a demagogue. This was the great fear of the founders in America, and we're seeing a once, not just in a lifetime, once in many lifetimes demagogue. And he will not succeed, but it sounds contradictory, but to assure you he's not gonna succeed in being elected president, but only if the American people participate the way they did last time and to recognize the danger they face. CNN got a lot of criticism for its town hall in the States, and I had a different- they did, They did a town hall with, with Trump, yeah. did they? And the idea was ago. you gave him a platform, and mm -hmm. my view is, no, I like that because I want the American people to see you cannot take this election off and think, well, we fixed that mm -hmm. because the threat is in some ways more severe. But what, where do you know, Republicans, uh, normal, I've got, I'm going to call you normal Republican, normal Republicans like you, who I think have a clear sense of, uh, it's evident in, in your whole career, which I'll, I'll go to in a second, sense of public duty, the importance of uh, serving the community, there's a whole sense of Republican family values that clearly aren't manifested in Donald Trump. So where do they go if, you, as you say, the real Republican Party has, has disappeared? Well, for now, all thoughtful, principled Republicans need to go, and most have gone, to address the threat. I mean, I campaigned for Joe Biden, mm -hmm. and they should do so again, because this is above any policy disagreements. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have robust disagreements in America about, as you do here, about all kinds of policy issues. Okay, great. That's what a democracy should be about. But above those disagreements are things that are common ground, the rule of law, for example. And so the voting and the activism has to be aimed at that. And we'll get back to important disagreements about taxation or regulation, but those things pale in comparison to the threat to the thing above. And um, are you worried that Biden is even older than Trump? He's beginning to look frailer now. Do you think people will come out for Biden? I do, as they did last time, because sort of a backhanded compliment, but he's a lot better than the alternative. And so I think people will come out and say, well, I wish he was younger. I wish it was mm -hmm. Kamala Harris. I wish it was Pete Buttigieg or somebody. Fine, but he's the candidate. And so what you're always choosing, I forget who said, don't, oh, Joe Biden says, don't choose between me and the almighty, choose between me and the alternative. And so, uh, <laughs> given who the alternative is likely to be, it's really important that people recognize that's the choice and engage on it. Don't take this one off. And I, again, Lincoln was fond of quoting his Secretary of State during the Civil War who said, there's always enough virtue in America to save her. And then he paused and said, but just enough? And that was a description of our country in 1863. It's still a fair description of America. We'll be okay because it's enough virtue, but there isn't 
a surplus of virtue that allows people to take an election off. I'm, I suddenly got a flashback. When you said we'll be okay, I got a rather depressing flashback because when we were researching Veep, we uh, got a lot of advice from Ron Klain, who was Joe Biden, Vice President Biden's chief of staff at the time under Obama. He gives a lot of time looking around the offices of the Vice President, you know, talking to us about what life is like as a Vice President. He said America is always about being number one, but as Vice President, you're more or less going around with a metaphorical pin saying number two, and it's the, can, <laughs> the effect that has on you. But Ron Klain then went on to work on Hillary Clinton's campaign, and I remember um, messaging him the night before the election, saying good luck, and he replied, we'll be okay. Hmm. And so I just remember those words, we'll be okay, the night before Trump won. And of course, you did win the popular vote, but of course, the way the system works in America with the college vote, uh, Trump won. And that's, I think, where the rest of the world first got to see you. It was the Hillary Clinton campaign, right. uh, where as head of the FBI, you were obliged to look into. Uh, and I said, I'm not sure any of us really understood what the problem was. There was issues with email servers. It's bad enough for Donald Trump at the time to say, lock her up, uh, despite the fact that four years on, he's got the nuclear codes in, in his bathroom. Um, first of all, what was that like being in the spotlight like that? Not just for you as a head of the FBI, but, but personally as well, really. It's not something you ask for when you take on the job, I suppose. No. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. Part two of this event will be available as our next episode. Subscribers can access all three episodes now. This event was produced by senior producer Connor Boyle. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next who we should have on, and what our future debate should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com.